Chain drum will run the wall and save the dough. Fight and hold it hard and slow. Midnight man, the love of the moon. To keep this land your own. Blow on the horn and call the cry. How many of us can we make die? Flash of Well, there's a little inspiration in that music. As you really know the message of Scripture, at least.
Hello, this is William Fink, and this is um, Monday, June 20-something, 27th, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry, my watch, it, it's, I'm walking around. But this is the um, Christagenia Open Forum. Tonight I'm going to talk about Israel and Israel's relationship to the law. I've been accused by certain modern-day Pharisees, Bible clowns, of, of, of teaching something akin to the Judeo-Christian once-saved-always-saved philosophy, well, which, of course, is um, the, the belief that anybody... Any, any dog or swine or pig or, or animal who simply professes a belief in Jesus goes to heaven, no matter what they do in their life. And, and of course, that, that's a very inaccurate illustration of, of what I teach about Israel and sin and the law. The Bible states in many places, unequivocally, that all Israel shall be preserved. The Bible also teaches us that this law was given to us in our marriage relationship with Yahweh, which happened in Exodus, uh, let's say from Exodus chapter 19. Clifton is currently writing on this at great length. The law, the Levitical law we'll call it, the Old Testament law, what was given to us as a contractual agreement that, that a wife would have with her husband, sort of like a prenup, right? That, that's what we would call it today. And, and we would agree to behave and to act in this certain manner. And, and with that, Yahweh would keep us as her national husband. We would be married to him as a nation. We would be his wife. And, and the law was was to regulate our behavior in that relationship. That now it's fully evident that Yahweh had expectations of His people before that. What we see, Abraham kept Yahweh's statutes and commandments, and, and he was um, chosen out of all of his kinsmen to carry on the family line, so to speak, because of that. And, and that's explained in Genesis. We see that Adam and Eve were given a, a, a certain um, code of regulations, if you want to call it that, or expectation to behavior. And, and they were judged and, and condemned when, when they violated that. So, so, some sort of law has always been without race. Some sort of expectation has always been without race. But the Levitical law, in the letter of it, was for the Old Covenant relationship with Yahweh. And we, we will see that. And, and I'm going to start with, um, with Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to read most of that chapter. There were, um, while Paul and Barnabas were teaching certain things, and, and the Pharisees were disputing with them. 
And that, that's the background on this. The Pharisees of first century Judea, those who had, to one degree or another, accepted Christianity or, or the preaching of it, that they were teaching the necessity for people to obey the law of Moses and be circumcised, which is part of that covenant relationship, right? And, and we will see... The Apostles' response to that here, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, And some had come down from Judea to Antiochia, where Paul is, teaching the brethren that if you would not be circumcised in the custom of Moses, you were not able to be saved. Then upon their coming, no little discord and debate by Paul and Barnabas against them, they ordered Paul and Barnabas and some of the others among them to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, the ambassadors and elders, concerning this debate. So then, being set forth by the assembly, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, relating the turning of the nations, and brought about great joy among all the brethren the conversion of the nations, the dispersed Israelites. And arriving in Jerusalem, they were received by the assembly and the ambassadors or apostles and the elders and reported as much as Yahweh had done with them. Then there arose some who were persuaded by the sect of the Pharisees, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to instruct them to keep the law of Moses. Then the ambassadors and the elders gathered together to see concerning this account. And there being much debate, Peter, arising, said to them, Men, brethren, you know that from the first days Yahweh has chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe. And, and Peter's referring to the events outlined in Acts chapter 10. And Yahweh, who knows the heart, has accredited them to give the Holy Spirit, just as also to us. And distinguishing nothing between both us and them, by faith he cleanses their hearts. Therefore now, why tempt Yahweh to place a yoke upon the necks of the students, or the disciples, which neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear. Peter's judgment was that the ancient Israelites could not bear the law. And, and we see that was absolutely true. They broke it time and again, and, and they were eventually expelled from the kingdom and the presence of Yahweh because they simply could not keep the law. So Peter calls it here a yoke which his fathers, which our fathers have not been able to bear. But through the favor of Prince Yahshua, we trust to be saved by the manner as they also trust. Then all the multitude was silent, and they heard Barnabas and Paul relating as many signs and wonders as Yahweh had done among the nations through them. 
And after their silence, Jacob, James, responded, saying, Men, brethren, you listen to me. Simeon has declared just how at the first Yahweh considered to take from among the nations the nations of dispersed Israel, as the prophets what would prove, a people in his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I shall return, and I shall rebuild the tent of David which is fallen, and I shall rebuild its ruins, and I shall set it up again that those remaining of men seek Yahweh and all the nations whom have my name labeled upon them, says Yahweh doing these things from of old, known from of old, on which account I judge, James, not to trouble those from among the nations who turn to Yahweh, but to enjoin them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from that which is strangled and from blood. They are the only commandments with which James the Elder, the brother of Christ, thought should be passed on to the people of the dispersed Israelite nations who were turning back and, and turning to Christ. That's it. Acts chapter 15. We see, as Clifton also likes to say very often, that the book of Acts is a book of transition from the Old Covenant rituals and salvation under the law to New Covenant liberty and salvation in the face of Christ and the love of our, our racial kinsmen. For Moses from generations of old, Acts 15, verse 21, has those who were proclaiming him in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. You know, for the same reason, Paul talks about a man who would seek righteousness under the law in Galatians chapter 6. I might get back to this tonight. In the freedom in which Christ has set us free, and we're going to see this in Romans chapter 7, we're going to see Paul explain this freedom in which Christ has set us free. You stand fast indeed, and do not again be tangled or entangled in a yoke of bondage. Paul was addressing the Galatians in relation to the Pharisees who were trying to persuade them to become circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you should be circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire Law. Circumcision was a sign of obedience that was to be kept under the law. That's explained in Leviticus. And if you are to insist upon keeping any part of the law, and I will quote it later from James, you are liable to the entire law. 
and that will be explained fully tonight. You are left unemployed, getting yourself circumcised, seeking to keep the law and obligating yourself to the law. You are left unemployed apart from the anointed. Those in that law, those within law are tested, have fallen from favor. For we in spirit, from faith, anxiously await the expectation of justice. The expectation of justice is when we shall see the destruction of all of Yahweh's enemies and the return of all of Yahweh's children to eternal life. That would be a separate study, right? Acts 15.22 Then it was determined by the ambassadors and the elders with the whole assembly to send men chosen from among them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judah, who was called Barsabbas, and Silas, the man esteemed among the brethren, writing through their hand, the ambassadors and the elder brethren, to those brethren among the nations throughout Antiochia and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some coming out from among us have troubled you with words, ravaging your souls with things which we have not ordered, it was determined by us being of one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have given their souls on behalf of the name of our Prince Yahshua Christ. So we have sent Judah and Silas, and they by word announcing these things, for it was determined by the Holy Spirit and by us to impose not any greater burden upon you but these necessities to abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, which would include homosexual sex, which would include sex with animals, which would include race mixing, from which keeping yourselves you shall do well, farewell. That's it. That's what the apostles expected of the newly converted people of the nations returning to Christ. They expected no more from them. So then, they being released, went down into Antiochia, and gathering together the multitude, they handed over the letter. And reading it, they rejoiced to the encouragement, the rejection of the Pharisees. Then Judah and Silas also themselves, being interpreters of prophecy, with many words encouraged and reinforced the brethren. And spending a time, they were released with peace from the brethren to those who sent them back to Jerusalem. Then Paul and Barnabas spent time in Antiochia, teaching and announcing the good message of the word of the prince with many others also. The first century Pharisees wanted to judge Christians by the law, thereby expanding their own power which Christ sought to annul because their judgment was more than often unjust. Today, we again have plenty of modern-day Pharisees who would pick up where the first-century Judaizers left off. So here we shall see the relationship of the Christian to the law from the epistles of Paul. 
I will start with Romans chapters 1 through 8. I won't read everything. I'll skip a few parts. If I have time, I will cover Galatians after this. If I don't, well, Galatians might have to wait till next week. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I, Paul, bondman of Joshua Christ, the call ambassador. Of course, I'm reading this from the Christogonian New Testament. Set apart for the good message of Yahweh, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred writings, concerning his son who came forth from the offspring of David down through the flesh, according to the flesh, that's what it means, who had been distinguished as a son of Yahweh by ability in accordance with the spirit of sanctity by a raising of the dead, Yahshua Christ our Prince, through whom we receive favor and a message for compliance of faith by all of the nations in behalf of his name among whom also are you called of Yahshua Christ, to all those in Rome who are beloved of Yahweh, called to be saints, or called saints, favor to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. So we see right away that Paul addresses the Romans and says that Christ is calling us for a compliance of faith. And we will see Paul's definition of faith when we get of that faith when we get to Romans chapter 4, where he descri describes it succinctly. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Truly I am not ashamed of the good message, for it is the, the ability of Yahweh to guarantee preservation to all who have trust both to the Judean at the beginning, the tents of Judah were to be saved first, that's a matter of prophecy in Zechariah, and then to the Greek, the Greeks themselves mostly being descended from the children of Israel, the Dorian and Danon and, and certain other Greek tribes were, not the Ionian. The righteousness of Yahweh is revealed in them those who accept the word, from trust in faith, just as it is written, but the just will live by faith. And again, when we would discuss Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 also, we shall see exactly what that faith is that the just shall live by. Because Paul defines for us that faith which Abraham had, and in which we are also justified. Because the promise to, it, to Abraham and all of his offspring was unequivocal and without condition. While well, all of his legitimate offspring... For the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice. Because that which is to be known of Yahweh is visible among them, since Yahweh has made it known to them. Namely, the unseen things of his from the creation of the world are clearly observed, being understood in the things made both of his eternal power and divinity 
for this they are inexcusable. Paul is holding responsible those men who do not recognize Yahweh as the Creator God. Because knowing Yahweh, they thought of Him not as God, nor were they thankful, but they became foolish in their reasonings and were darkened. The Romans originally did worship Jove. Who is Yahweh? Their hearts void of understanding. Alleging to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the estimation of the incorruptible Yahweh into a resemblance of an image of corruptible man. Paul here is proving identity. He's proving our Christian Israel identity belief that the Romans actually did descend from the offspring of the children of Israel. And indeed they did through Zara Judah, through the Trojans. Well, Paul is proving that here. Because he's telling us that the Romans, and he's talking about the pagan Romans, did indeed have the truth of God, and they changed it into a lie. On which account Yahweh hands them over to uncleanness in the passions of their hearts, their bodies to be dishonored among themselves. Tacitus, the first century Roman historian, said of the Romans that they engaged in sexual immorality and called it modern. But, well, we have that same problem today, don't we? Everyone who exchanges the truth of Yahweh with falsehoods and reverences and serves the creation rather than the Creator, who is praised for the ages, truly. And we see the Catholics who do this very thing. They worship Mary, they worship saints, they worship statues, they worship the things that were created by God and not the Creator. And, and they have all sorts of problems with homosexuality and all sorts of sexual deviancy, don't they? Therefore, Yahweh handed them over into a state of disgrace. For both their females exchanged their natural intimacy for that contrary to nature. Paul's talking about lesbians. And likewise, the males have given up the natural intimacy of the female, inflamed in their desires for one another. Males with males perpetrating shamefulness. And their wandering necessitates the reward they are receiving among themselves. Yahweh handed these people over to this immorality, as Paul explicitly states, which we see is therefore in itself a punishment from God. And just as they do not think, to, think it fit to have Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind. He gave them up to sin, in other words. To do things not fitting. Paul repeats this to stress the fact that their immorality itself is a punishment. Being filled with all injustice, fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, murder, strife, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, pretentious, contrivers of evil, disobedient to parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, heartless, merciless, such as these who, knowing the judgments of Yahweh, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them, 
And in other words, if you approve of somebody's committing these things, you also are worthy to the judgment under the law. If we were under the law, if we were under the judgments of the law, and we will see that later, Such sinners are deemed worthy of death, as Paul states explicitly. But as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, the repentant have the mercy of Christ. And I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? That is true. Do not be led astray. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And verse 11, what which the Pharisees often fail to quote, says, And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. You cleanse yourselves in the blood of Christ by accepting his sacrifice on your behalf. And you stop being, you, you stop engaging in this behavior. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Joshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, people doing those things won't inherit the kingdom, because in the kingdom, people simply won't be doing these things. In the end, we will all repent. Every knee shall bow. Every mouth shall confess. Therefore, Paul advises that it is better to stop doing those things now. Verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2. On which account you are inexcusable, O man, all who judge. Since in that which you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Indeed, you practice the things which are judged. If you have never committed adultery, if you have ever committed adultery, you have no right to label anyone else an adulterer. For this reason, James says in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 10, For he who should keep the whole law, but would fail in one thing, has become liable for all. Furthermore, the apostle John said in his epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, If we should say that we have not done wrong, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. To continue with Paul, Romans chapter 2, verse 2, But we know that the judgment of Yahweh is in accordance with truth towards those who practice such things. Only Yahweh knows our hearts. Only Yahweh knows the walk we've walked. 
Only Yahweh, only our God can judge us righteously. And consider this, O man, who is judging those who practice such things, then practicing them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of Yahweh? Or the wealth of his kindness and the tolerance and patience that you think contemptuously of. In other words, those who don't believe, as Christ said, that every sin which men forgive shall be forgiven, that every sin which men commit shall be forgiven, except blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Those who deny those words of Christ are those who think contemptuously of the wealth of his kindness and the tolerance and patience which he has. If Jesus Christ says, in, as he says in Matthew chapter 12, that every sin will be forgiven men, and you say, oh no, that's not true, well, you are holding the judgment of God in contempt. That's exactly what you're doing, and that's exactly the people that Paul is addressing here. I would not hold the kindness and, and favor of God in contempt by denying it of my brother when Yahweh says that all of the seed of Israel shall be justified. And we'll see the reasons for that as this progresses. Or the wealth of his kindness and the tolerance and patience that you think contemptuously of, ignorant that the benevolence of Yahweh leads you to repentance. As the parable says, he who is forgiven much is much grateful, right? If you condemn your brother for his sin, and you slip up in the future, how can you expect the mercy of God? You can't. So you better walk on eggshells for the rest of your earthly life and beyond. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall... I'm, I'm quoting the King James Version, I believe here. Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and released him, and forgave him the debt. But the servant, the same servant, went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred pennies. 
And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all of it. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all of that which was done. Then his Lord, after he, that he had called him, and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, because you desired it of me. Should not you also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. If you've been an adulterer, you better not judge your brother, <laughs> suspecting him to be an adulterer. Romans 2, verse 5. But in accordance with your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you store up to yourself anger at the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of Yahweh, who will render to each according to his works. People who feel that they've done good all their lives, people who are self-righteous, they get angry at the idea that all of the sinners of our race are going to be forgiven. They get mad at that. Oh, but I've been good all my life. I'm righteous. I'm, I'm, why aren't you sending them to the lake of fire? He was an adulterer. Why don't you send him to the lake of fire? He was a murderer. Why don't you send him to the lake of fire? They get angry at the righteous judgment of God. That's what Paul's explaining here. If you're a self-righteous person, you're going to be offended when Yahweh forgives a sinner because you think you've done good. Why? Do you think you've shorted yourself? Do you think you've missed out on something? Not having led a profligate lifestyle? As Paul explained in Romans chapter 1, those who lead profligate lifestyles are those whom Yahweh has decided to punish. Verse 7. Surely, to those with endurance in good works, honor and dignity and incorruptibility, they seek eternal life. But we can't boast in our perceived lack of sin, because we all sin. But to those of contention, and they who disobey the truth, that all Israel will be justified, but are persuaded by injustice, anger, and wrath, Affliction and strait upon every soul of man who labors to accomplish evil, both of the Judean at the beginning and then of the Greek. Paul's talking about Israelites. 
But honor and dignity and peace to everyone who labors for good, both to the Judean at the beginning and then to the Greek, for there is no respect of the stature of persons with Yahweh. For as many as have done wrong without the law, or outside the law, without the law they are cleansed. That reading of the Greek, that word can be read either way, I would insist it. My reading is consistent with all scripture. The King James reads that without the law, they shall perish. Which would set all of the promises of Yahweh at naught. The word apoluntahi is a form of either verb. And I've proven that on other occasions. For as many as have done wrong without the law, without law then they are cleansed, and as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law they will be judged. Since not the hearers of the law are just before Yahweh, but the performers of the law are to be considered just. For when the nations which do not have the law by nature, practice the things of the law. Paul is making an appeal here to, and he's making an allegory with, Gen, with, with Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says that Yahweh said that his law will be written on our hearts. These themselves are a law, who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts, bearing witness with their conscience and between one another, considering accusations or then defending the accused. As we saw when I discussed Matthew chapter 12 last week, the law, as men have it, is not perfect. It doesn't cover every possible situation. And there are times when the letter of the law has to be overlooked in order to accomplish what is right. And Christ demonstrated that to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees rebuked him and reviled him for that demonstration. Today we have modern day Pharisees who want to hold their brethren to the letter of the law and in many cases holding their brethren to the letter of the law does not accomplish justice and does not help your brethren. Rather, it places further burden on them. And the apostles did not want to lay a yoke upon the necks of Christians, which our fathers could not bear. So to those of contention, and they who disobey the truth, but are persuaded by injustice, holding your brother to the letter of the law in every instance, anger and wrath, affliction and strait upon every soul of man who labors to accomplish evil, both of the Judean at the beginning and then of the Greek. But honor and dignity and peace to everyone who labors for good, both to the Judean at the beginning and then to the Greek. 
There is no respect of the stature of persons with Yahweh. I'm sorry, I've read this already. For as many as have done wrong without law, without law they are cleansed. They are cleansed in the blood of Christ. Paul's talking about the nations, the dispersed of Israel. And as many as have done wrong in the law, the people of Judea, who insist on clinging to the law, by the law, they will be judged. So if you're a modern-day Pharisee who insists on following the law and who claims to live by the law, you will be judged by the law. It's that simple. As we've already seen Paul say in Galatians chapter 6 that those who seek to live by the law shall be judged by the law. They are not judged by the favor of Christ. At this point, it's me to, for me to read a part of Leviticus chapter 25. And, and this is to address a certain modern-day Pharisee who insists that we live by the law. And I won't mention his name. He is one of the three stooges, though. I will say that. Take thou no usury of him. Leviticus 25.36 Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I believe it was Jeremiah, and, and I, don't have it, and I don't have it handy, but it, it can be dug out. I believe it was Jeremiah who, when Yahweh called him, said that he was not a curse because he had neither lent at usury nor borrowed at usury. Yahweh really hates usury. He insisted with the ancient Israelites that they lent at usury only to aliens so that the aliens wouldn't come into the land and profit from them. But Yahweh really hates usury. And I would say that if you're a stock trader, you're taking somebody else's money as they hope to gain increase for it. You're selling somebody else's security and promising them increase for it. Or baiting them with increase for it. The entire securities business is based on usury. Stocks are a form of usury. Companies create stocks hoping to attract money from others, and the people who buy them risk their money, hoping to attain something more which they actually did not earn. That's usury. No matter how you put it, it's usury. And if you're a usurer, you would better not be judging an adulterer. If you're a dealer in potions... If you're a snake oil salesman, that is pharmacia. And if you're dealing in pharmaceuticals, you would better not be judging an adulterer. 
Romans 2, verse 17, and the subsequent verses will demonstrate that. But if you are called a Judean and depend upon the law and boast in Yahweh, and you know the purpose and you scrutinize the things that differ, being instructed from the law, and then persuaded yourself to be a guide of the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the childish, having the semblance of knowledge and of truth in the law, are you really teaching another, not teaching yourself? Proclaiming not to steal, do you steal? Declaring not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Or have you ever committed adultery? Loathing idols, do you commit sacrilege? I would say that perhaps by enriching aliens in business and trading with the enemies of Yahweh, you might be loathing, idol, loathing idols, but you're surely committing sacrilege. You who boasts in the law, through transgression of the law, do you dishonor Yahweh? Indeed, the name of Yahweh through you is blasphemed among the nations, just as it is written. For circumcision indeed profits if you would practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision, because true circumcision is of the heart. Back to Paul. Therefore, if the uncircumcised should keep the judgments of the law, would his uncircumcision not be counted for circumcision? Have mercy and love for one's brethren first. Then the uncircumcised from nature who is fulfilling the law shall judge you who through writing and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. One by appearance is not a Judean, in other words, by physical circumcision, or an outward boast in keeping the law. And not by appearance in flesh is circumcision. But in concealment one is a Judean. And circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not in writing, of which approval is not from men, but from Yahweh. I would say that if you go into the home of your brother and inquire as to whether or not his wife was a virgin, you seek to be a judge of the law and not a doer of the law. If there is no other man with a claim to that woman, and your brother has accepted the woman into his home, who are you to judge your brother? Let's read a little more of James chapter 2. From verse 8. If, however, you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love him who is near to you as yourself. You do well. But if you respect the stature of persons, you commit an error, being convicted by the law of, as transgressors. For he who should keep the whole law, but who would fail in one thing, has become liable for all. For he, having said, you should not commit adultery, also said, you should not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you would become a transgressor of the law. Thusly, 
you speak, and thusly you do, as if going to be judged by a law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy for him not effecting mercy. Mercy exalts over judgment. Romans chapter 3. What then is the advantage of the Judean, or of what utility is the circumcision? Many by all means. Paul's, of course, talking about real Judahite Judeans, not Edomites. Firstly, for reason that they have been entrusted with the sayings of Yahweh. Therefore, what if some of them have not had faith? Shall their lack of faith nullify the faith of Yahweh? Certainly not. Rather, Yahweh will be true and every man a liar, just as it is written, that you should be just in your words, and you shall prevail when you are judged. But if our injustice introduces the justice of Yahweh, what do we say? Is Yahweh unjust then, imposing wrath or punishing us in this life for those sins worthy of punishment? Back to Paul. I speak from manhood. Certainly not. Otherwise, in what way does Yahweh judge the society? Indeed, if the truth of Yahweh were increased by my lie for his honor, why then am I still judged as a wrongdoer? And shall we not, just as we are slandered, and just as some suppose that we say, bring about evil things in order that good things may come? Of these, which decision is legitimate? Verse 8 in Romans 3 is important. It's important because Paul is teaching Israel that they will not be judged by the law and, they have, and that they are not to judge their brethren by the law. Therefore, the Pharisees of that time accused Paul of promoting sin just as certain modern-day Pharisees would accuse me of the same thing when I try to explain exactly this, that we are not going to be judged by the law, and that all of Israel shall indeed be saved. And they like to say of me that, oh, he says the law don't matter. That's a lie. And he says that we could go and do what we want. That's a lie. And it's the same lie that the first century Pharisees were using against the early Christian apostles. So you people that think you know the scripture, you are really fools. Or you probably belong in the camp of the Pharisees because you don't have that promise which Yahweh promised to all of Israel. It's got to be one or the other. You're a fool or you're a Jew. Paul asks, What then are we better? Not at all. For we previously accused both Judeans and Greeks of all, always being at fault or sin. I don't like to use the word sin because the word sin has um, mystical connotations applied to it by 
the Catholic Church, and, and for that reason, maybe it's my Catholic upbringing, I try to avoid the word. Let me explain the Greek word hamartano. It's a verb. It means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. It means to commit an error. To create a fault. To be at fault. And that's why I translate the word the way I do. I translate the word literally. Verse 10. Just as it is written, that there is none righteous, not even one. There is no room among men for self-righteousness. You cannot boast that you do not sin. If you boast that you do not sin, you're a liar because you do sin. And if you boast that you do not sin, you're basically accusing God of lying. Verse 11, there is none understanding. There is not one seeking after Yahweh. They have all turned away. Together they have become unprofitable. There is none practicing kindness. There is not so much as one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have dealt treacherously. The poison of asps is under their lips of which the mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Swift are their feet to shed blood. Ruin and suffering are in their ways, are in their ways, and a way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of Yahweh before their eyes. These words were written in the Psalms of our ancestors, and they apply to us. Now we know, Romans 3, verse 19, that whatever the law says, to those in the law it speaks, that every mouth be stopped, and all the society will be brought under the judgment of Yahweh. Since from the rituals of the law, not any flesh will be deemed acceptable in his sight. Indeed, through the law is the knowledge of error. If you hope for the law, if you hope in the law for salvation, you denounce the faith in Christ, and you will be judged by the law. Since we're all sinners, how will you escape damnation, having denied the favor which is in Christ to Israel? How can you escape damnation if you deny that? You cannot. You have no salvation in the law. Verse 21. But now apart from the law... The justice of Yahweh is made known as attested by the law and the prophets. All the offspring of Israel shall be justified. But justice of Yahweh through the faith of Yahshua Christ, the faith which Christ had, the faith and, and our faith in following him, for all of those who are believing, for there is no distinction among sinners. For all have done wrong and have fallen short of the honor of Yahweh. All 
have done wrong and have fallen short of the honor of Yahweh, without exception. Being freely accepted by his favor through the redemption that is at the hands of Christ Yahshua. Whom Yahweh sets forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood for display of his justice by means of the pretermission of forthcoming errors, sins that Yahweh knew would occur. By the tolerance of Yahweh for the display of his justice in the present time, for he is just and is accepting of him that is from the faith of Yahshua. And we have to understand Yahshua's sacrifice in order to be of that faith. That he died on behalf of the children of Israel. And to free Israel from the law, as we will see in Romans chapter 7. Sin came into this world through race mixing. We will see that also. And therefore, at the end of this age, and I might be blamed for conjecturing this, but I'm not. It's the story of the Bible. All those who are not race mixed shall be saved. All of his true children, there is no exception. They are those who have his spirit. There is no rationalizing the salvation of God. The Pharisees, the modern-day Pharisees, they want to rationalize Israelites into the lake of fire. And that's a backdoor to universalism. Once they rationalize one Israelite into the lake of fire, they'll start rationalizing non-Israelites who were good into heaven. That's not the story of the Scripture. That's not the promises of God. That is Catholicism. That is Judeo-Christianity. The modern-day Pharisees are simply Judeo-Christians who want to rule over other Christians with the law. Verse 27, Romans chapter 3. Where then is the reason to boast? Can you boast in your keeping the law? No. It has been excluded. Through what sort of law? Of the rituals? No. But through a law of faith, no man has a right to boast that he keeps the law. It's that simple. We therefore conclude by reasoning a man, an Adamic man, as we shall learn in chapter 5, to be accepted by faith apart from the rituals of law. I hope the modern-day Pharisees hear that. A man is accepted by faith apart from the rituals of the law. Is Yahweh of the Judeans only, and not of the nations? Yeah, also of the nations seeing that it is Yahweh alone who will accept the circumcised from faith and the uncircumcised through the faith. 
Do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. The law we are not going to be judged by. The law that we should not judge our brethren by. We should seek to establish it because it is an ideal which, because we have this favor, because this favor has been granted to our race, even though we were all deserving of death, we should strive to establish and to follow. Those who have been forgiven the most shall be the most grateful. That's the parable. We certainly don't judge each other by the law or look to our salvation, look in it to, for our salvation. And if we do those things, we've already failed. But we, in our daily lives, should each attempt to live by it as our ideal. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here, not in so many words. We don't nullify the law by our faith. Rather, we establish the law. Romans 3, verse 31. Romans chapter 4. Paul defines the faith of Abraham in this chapter. In the second paragraph. Now that we say, now what may we say that our forefather Abraham has found concerning the flesh? For if Abraham from the rituals has been, has been deemed worthy, he has reason to boast, but not toward Yahweh. Indeed, what do the writings say? That Abraham trusted Yahweh and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to he who performs rituals, his reward is not considered in accordance with favor, but in accordance with debt. And these modern-day Pharisees might say to me right now, well, Paul's talking about the rituals of the law, and yes, he is. But I would say that there are plenty of people in identity today that want to substitute other requirements for those rituals, like water baptism and certain other actions. They trade a wooden idol for a spiritual idol. They trade circumcision for another ritual and say, oh, you have to do this. Anything that you tell your brother you have to do in order to achieve salvation... That's a ritual. There's nothing that we could do to achieve our own salvation. For if Abraham from the rituals had been deemed worthy, he has reason to boast, but not towards Yahweh. Indeed, what did the writing say? That Abraham trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to he who performs rituals, his reward is not considered in accordance with favor, but in accordance with debt. If you believe that you have to do a certain thing to gain your salvation, then you're replacing the Old Testament rituals with that certain thing. 
but to he not performing, but who rather is trusting on he who must judge the impious, trusting that Yahweh shall keep his word, that we all shall be saved, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also declares the blessing of the man to whom Yahweh accounts righteousness apart from rituals, Blessed are they who were released, released from lawlessness, and whose errors are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not account guilt or sin. As John says in his first epistle, Each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing, because his seed abides in him. They are the people to whom Yahweh will not account guilt. That is the word of God. All the offspring of Israel, all the seed of Israel, shall be justified. Period. All Israel shall be saved. Period. If you deny that application to the seed of Israel, to true Genetic Israel in the word in, in the world, if you deny that, you are denying the word of God. You are a Catholic. Is this blessing then on the uncircumcised or also on the circumcised, meaning the dispersion of Israel? And Paul in this blessing is saying, Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not account guilt. Or sin. Indeed, we say that faith was accounted to him, to Abraham, for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Being in circumcision, meaning being under the law, or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, or an assurance of the righteousness of the faith, he had in uncircumcision. In regard to his being the father of all those who were believing in a state of uncircumcision, for them also to be accounted of that righteousness and father of circumcision to those not from circumcision only, but to those who walk in the footsteps of the faith, our father Abraham, and, and the, the father idea is, is crucial there, had in uncircumcision. In the next paragraph, Paul defines that faith. Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society, but through righteousness of faith. For if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. Such is he who boasts in keeping the law, he's voiding the faith. For the law results in wrath, so that where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be made certain to all of the offspring. I don't see any exceptions there. The promise is certain to all of the offspring. Not to that of the law only, meaning those Israelites who were under the old covenant, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, 
Paul understood where he calls Abraham, Abraham our forefather. Paul understood that he was writing to the descendants, to some of the descendants of Israel, which the Romans were. Verse 17, just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, and calls things not existing, meaning those offspring that Abraham was to have, as existing. In other words, Yahweh was sure he could fulfill his promise that Abraham would have those children. Who, contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. And the Catholics are wrong. It's not, thus the church will be. All of those nations came from Abraham's loins. And he, not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, but at the promise of Yahweh he did not doubt and disbelief, rather he was strengthened in faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction that what he has promised he is also capable of doing. For that reason also it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham believed that his physical descendants would indeed become many nations in spite of his old age and in spite of his childless state. Abraham was 75 when he was first called by Yahweh. And that is exactly what happened. His offspring did become many nations. That belief that belief is the faith of Abraham. That's what Paul's explaining here. That's what the faith of Abraham is. Therefore, Christian Israel identity is the only faith which recognizes the truth of Scripture, while the mainstream cults deny it and try to pervert it. However, as soon as we start eliminating sinners, Abraham will have not one descendant except Christ. Yahweh said, all of the seed offspring of Israel shall be justified. He's not talking about some church made up of other people. All of this is talking about a genetic, physical Israel, and that definition is the definition of the faith of Abraham, as Paul explains here. And they shall all be justified, as Paul explains here, and as Isaiah explained in chapter 45. And as can be told in other of the prophets. Moreover, it was not written regarding him only that it was accounted to him, but also regarding us, to whom it is destined to be accounted, to Abraham's seed, to Abraham's offspring, to those who believe in he who raised Joshua, our prince, from the death, from death, who was handed over for reason of our transgressions, and was raised for reasons of our acquittal. This is the purpose of Christ, to take upon himself all the sins of Israel. 
to take that responsibility upon himself and where Israel, where all the children of Israel deserve to die under the law, and we should all be dead, Yahweh himself came here instead and died so that Israel could be discharged from the law. And that's what we will see Paul explain in Romans chapter 7. Therefore, Matthew 12, 31, For this reason I say to you, every error in blasphemy shall be remitted or forgiven for men. But blasphemy of the Spirit, that spirit of separateness, that's what the Holy Spirit means, the spirit of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh, that Israel was to be a separate nation, Blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be remitted or forgiven. So we see that we are judged worthy on account of the faith, but that faith has to be the faith of Abraham and the faith of Christ. Aliens cannot have that faith. It's not even the faith of ourselves. It's the faith of Abraham. And it's the faith of Christ, that he knew he could lay down his life and take it up again, and therefore fulfill the law, and keep his life and ours. As Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 2, For in favor you are being preserved through faith, and this, Yahweh's gift, is not of yourselves. You cannot save yourself. You can't save yourself by obeying the law. You and your fathers have already broken it, and you should all be dead if we were judged, if Yahweh our God decided to judge us under the law. But in order to fulfill his promise to Abraham, he came and died instead, releasing us from the law. Ephesians 2.9, not from works, lest anyone would boast. For his work we are, having been established among the number of Christ Yahshua for good works, which Yahweh prepared before in order that we would walk in them. We should love our brother, and we should judge him with mercy. Well, we shouldn't judge him, but we should look at him with mercy and treat him mercifully. Chapter 5. Therefore, having been deemed worthy from out of faith, we have peace before Yahweh through our Prince Yahshua Christ, through whom we also have access by faith to this favor in which we are established, and we boast in expectation of the honor of Yahweh. And not only, but we should also boast in afflictions, knowing that affliction results in endurance or long-suffering, and the endurance of tried character, and the tried character and expectation. And the expectation does not disgrace, because the love of Yahweh has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. Indeed, when we were feeble, Christ at the appointed time died for the impious. 
Though scarcely for the benefit of the upright will one die, for the benefit of the noble perhaps one then dares to die, but Yahweh introduces his own love to us because we, yet being sinners, Christ had died for our benefit. In other words, Paul is saying that we were scum, that a man might die for another man who was noble, but Christ died for scum. That's what Paul is explaining there. So who are we to boast? Still more then, being deemed worthy now by his blood, we will be preserved by him from wrath. Therefore, if we being odious were reconciled, reconciled to Yahweh through the death of his son, still more being reconciled, we will be preserved in his life. And, as Paul says, we should seek to establish the ideals of the law. That, that's what he's saying there. And not only, but also boasting in Yahweh through our Prince Joshua Christ, by whom we now have received that reconciliation. For this reason, just as by one man, failure of purpose or sin, and, and that's a... Um, a literal rendering of the noun hamartia, failure of purpose. For this reason, just as by one man, failure of purpose entered into the society, or the world, if you will, but it's the Adamic society, and by that failure of purpose, death, that death being the judgment of God for the sin of our first parents. That's what Paul's saying here. That death was a judgment that we were all to die to experience death, that's the judgment of God for the sin of our first parents, even though they didn't have the Levitical law. And in that manner, death is passed to all men. Remember the serpent lied and told the Eve, ye shall surely not die. Meaning, that he was, he convinced her that she would escape judgment. And in that manner, death is passed to all men on account that all have done wrong. We've all sinned in one way or another. And Paul explains in verse 13, For until the law, fault was in the society, sin was in the society, but the fault was not accounted, they're not being law. This is the same predicament. In other words, people weren't judged, they didn't judge each other by the law, as they did once they received the law from God. This is the same predicament we, were, we are in today. If we were to be judged by the law today, we'd all be dead now. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed an error resembling the transgression of Adam, who was an image of the future. Death does not reign over us now because we know that we have life in Christ. Verse 15. But should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, 
which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. Then Paul asks a rhetorical question, verse 16, And not then by one having committed error is the gift? Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation. Paul is referring to the condemnation Christ suffered on behalf of us all, and we are saved through his faith that he would live while giving his life for us. But the favor is from the many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. We are all acquitted of our sins through Christ. That is the theme of the entire Bible, right from Genesis 3, unless the man reach out and grasp the tree of life and live forever. So we see that Christ, being the tree of life, is connected right back to the transgression, and he is the remedy for the transgression in the Garden of Eden, and he is the only remedy. The people who want to use the law to be Pharisees over their brethren are missing the big picture. For if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor. And the gift of justice they are receiving. In life they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, we all suffer death on account of the sin of our first parents. In this manner, then, through one decision of judgment for all men is for a judgment of life. There's no exceptions there. Our entire race will be resurrected. There are no exceptions. If you have the spirit of Adam, you have this judgment of life. But then again, some modern-day Pharisees, the only verses they've ever read in Romans are in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many were set down as wrongdoers, in this manner then, through the obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be established as righteous. Moreover, the law entered an addition that the transgression would increase. In other words, Paul saying, without the law, we would not recognize the gravity of our past errors, as Paul explains in Galatians that the law is our tutor or our schoolmaster. But where guilt increased, favor exceeded beyond measure, that just as guilt reigned in death, so then favor shall reign through justice for life eternal through Yahshua Christ, our Prince. All of Israel shall be saved, and the rest of the Adamic race will be blessed in Abraham's seed. Every Adamic being will be in the resurrection. Period. Verse 6. Now what may we say? Shall we continue in fault that favor would be greater? Here was another charge, that same charge of the Pharisees. 
Certainly not. We who have died in guilt, how can we still live in it? Or are you ignorant that as long as we are immersed in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are immersed? So we were buried with him through immersion into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the honor of the Father, so then we in newness of life should walk. So here we see that while it was previously explained that not one of us can keep the whole law, that not one of us are without guilt or sin, yet we should hold the law as our ideal. We should seek to follow the law, but we shall not be judged by it. There's a huge difference. The Pharisees could never understand this. And therefore, we should not judge our brethren by it. It's one thing when a wicked person is allowed to pollute the community. That we cannot allow. But it is another thing to judge your brother when there is no ac accuser except you who looks for an accusation where otherwise there is none. Even if your brother's done you wrong, you should look to forgive him. Of course, there are instances when a man must be put out of the community. Paul outlines one of those instances in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about a man who is sleeping with his father's wife and asks them or, or instructs them to put him out of the community, that the wicked must be put away from us, and that is true. Therefore, if united, we have become in the likeness of his death, then also shall we be of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, that old man who lived under the law and, and who sinned and, and transgressed the law, was crucified with him that the body would be left void of guilt, the guilt of sin. We don't have it today. We are all washed in the blood of Christ that no longer are we in bondage to guilt. Therefore, dying, one is judged worthy apart from, from sin or from fault. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no, more lords, no longer lords over him. Therefore, when he died, the guilt upon all died. I will bring this up again when I cover Romans chapter 7. When he died, the guilt upon all died. But because he lives, he lives to Yahweh. In that manner, you also consider yourselves to be dead, indeed in guilt, but living to Yahweh in Christ Yahshua. Therefore, do not let fault or sin reign in your mortal body for which to submit to its desires. There is no doubt that we should do our best not to submit to fleshly desires. But as Paul explains in chapter 7, and as we will discuss tonight, that is not easy to do, and none of us will be completely successful at so doing it. Verse 13, chapter 6 of Romans, Neither should you surrender your members as instruments of wrongdoing in error or sin, but present yourselves to Yahweh as living from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to Yahweh. 
by doing good works for your brethren, right? Therefore, guilt shall not lord over you, for you are not under the law, but under favor. All Israel shall be saved by the favor of Yahweh. That is the promise of the law and the prophets. What then? Shall we commit wrongdoing because we are not under the law, but under favor? The Pharisees of that time were accusing Paul of this attitude and such explanations debating this same thing are found in many of the early Christian writers. And Paul replies, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as bondmen to obey, bondmen you are to whom you obey, truly either of error for death or of obedience for righteousness? But feel grateful to Yahweh that you were bondmen of guilt, but you obeyed from the heart into which a form of instruction was transmitted. The law is written upon our hearts, right? And having been liberated from guilt, you have become bondmen to righteousness. We've been liberated from the guilt of the law, but we should seek to do that which is right. From manhood I speak regarding the weakness of your flesh. Real men admit that the flesh is weak. For just as you surrender your members in bondage to uncleanness and to lawlessness for lawlessness, now in that manner present yourselves, present your members in bondage to righteousness for sanctification. Indeed, when you were bondmen of error, you were free from righteousness. Now what profit did you have then at which you are now ashamed? Surely the result of those things is death. But now, having been liberated from guilt, guilt under the law, and becoming bondmen to Yahweh, you have, you have your profit in sanctification, and the result is life for eternity. Therefore, the provision of error is death. But the favor of Yahweh is life for eternity in Yahshua Christ our Prince. Chapter 7 I'm not going to get to Galatians tonight, but I will finish those parts of Romans that I hope to cover. Romans chapter 7. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law. That the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. The Pharisees, the modern-day Pharisees, they love to take this verse out of context. But Paul said at Romans 6, verse 10, that therefore when he, meaning Yahshua, died, the guilt upon all died. Paul here is not suddenly explaining marital relations under the law without a particular reason. What he is really talking here, about here, is of the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel. The children of Israel were bound to the Levitical law until Yahweh came here as a man and died as Jesus Christ and died 
therefore fulfilling the Levitical law and discharging Israel from the law. Technically, we are not under the law. That's why Paul said, we're not under the law, we're under favor. We are not under the Levitical law. We are, in this age, under the favor of God. Paul's teaching that is in perfect harmony with the Old Testament prophets. Israel, being an adulterous race, being a fornicating wife to Yahweh, Israel, the entire nation, every single one of us was liable to death. Of course, Yahweh understood that. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, well, well, in Jeremiah chapter 31, from verse 31 forward, Yahweh promised that a new covenant would be made with Israel, all of Israel, Israel and Judah, and that Israel would not die, but that Israel would always be a nation in his presence. Until the sun, earth, moon, and stars disappear anyway. And that's the promise of Jeremiah chapter 31. And that's because Israel, being an adulterous wife, was liable to death. Every one of us should be dead under the old covenant. Yahweh had a promise to fulfill to Abraham, our father. He foresaw all of this. He foresaw everything that happened in history or that's written in the book. Of course he did. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen long before he made that promise to Abraham. He knew what was going to happen long before he ever created Adam. He had that promise to Abraham and he had to fulfill it. The only way that he could fulfill the promise to Abraham was that he die. Because one or the other party, under the law, had to die. Either Israel, all of our, our race, dies the penalty of an adulterous wife, or Yahweh dies to release the wife from the law. That same law, as I explained earlier, that Israel agreed to when she became Yahweh's wife. Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and so on. So, Yahweh discharged Israel from the law, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 7. Don't try to hold your brother to the letter of the Levitical law if Yahshua Christ is not going to hold you to the letter of the Levitical law. If you want to hold your brother to the letter of the Levitical law, then, as Paul just explained in Romans, you will be judged by the law. And you're in trouble. You're in deep shit. Because we've all sinned, and we all deserve to die under the law.
Not one of us can claim that we've never violated the laws of God, as Paul just explained. Romans 6.10 Therefore, when he died, the guilt upon all died. Romans 7.3 But if the husband should die, being Yahweh, she, being Israel, is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man, whatever state our people are in before they return to Christ. That's not going to be culminated until Christ actually returns. So you can't use Romans chapter 7 to hold your brother to the letter of the law. Israel has been discharged from the law. Yes, we should hold the law as our ideal. But, as we've clearly seen, we should not judge our brother by the law. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ, because he died for us. For you to be found with another from whom from, who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. And that is the ideal that we should try to live up to. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not in oldness of letter. Now what may we say is the law an error? Certainly not. But I, meaning Paul, had not perceived fault or sin unless by the law. Then also I had not acknowledged covetousness unless the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But the error, having taken a starting point by the commandment, has accomplished in me all covetousness. For apart from the law, guilt is dead. In other words, there is no recognition of sin until we learn what sin is. And it comes into our consciousness. Verse 9. Now I was alive apart from the law once, but the commandment having come, the guilt was revived, and I died. Paul here acknowledges that he too was a sinner. And it was found to me that the commandment, which is for life, it is for death. For error, or sin, having taken a starting point by the commandment, had seduced and killed me through it. In other words, like a child told not to touch the hot stove, 
we also must touch it once we're told not to do so. It's human nature. So indeed, the law is sacred and the commandment sacred and just and good. Another rhetorical question. Then that which is good to me, has it become death? Certainly not. But error, that it may bring fault to light, through the good in me, accomplishes death, so that fault, the fault becomes excessively wicked by the commandment. In other words, only by the law do we really know good and evil. Indeed, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly being ruined by guilt, for that which I perpetrate, I do not recognize. In other words, we refuse to recognize it. I do not practice that which I wish, rather I do that which I hate. We all cannot help but sin in these bodies of flesh, and any man who claims to be without sin makes God a liar, because God knows what he made. He knows what he has made, and he made it that way for a reason. Verse 16. But I do that which I do not wish. But if I do that which I do not wish, I concede to the law that it is virtuous. In other words, we know it's wrong, but sometimes we still do it. We concede to the law that the law is virtuous. Now then, no longer is I perpetrating it, but the, the fault dwelling within me. We see that the flesh cannot help but sin. There are times when the temptation is so great that our minds really can't control the lusts of our bodies. Therefore, I know that good does not dwell in me, that is to say, in my flesh. Indeed, to be willing is present with me, but for me to achieve virtue, no. We all have weaknesses, whether or not we would admit it. I do not wish that I practice good, but, I, but that I do not wish evil, this I practice. In other words, we try not to do bad. But if that which I do not wish, this I do, no longer is it I perpetrating it, but the fault dwelling in me. I find then the law which wishes me to practice virtue, because evil is present with me. The law, as I've said, is our ideal, but we can never totally live up to it. If we were all judged by it, we would all be dead, and therefore, the law forces us to recognize our own humility and, and the fact that we should be hum humble. Verse 22, Indeed, I rejoice in the law of Yahweh in accordance with the inward man. The inward man is that spirit which comes from that seed that's within us, and therefore, if we have that seed in us, Yahweh will not impute guilt to us. But I see another law in my members battling against the law of my mind, and leading me captive to the law of error, which is in my members. I call them hormones. That's exactly what they are. I am a miserable man who will deliver me from this body of death. I am thankful to Yahweh through Yahshua Christ our Prince, so that I myself with the mind indeed serve the law of Yahweh, but in the flesh the law 
of error. And, and that's simply because the very hormones that allow us to become attracted to women and, and to, um, to, to multiply and be fruitful as our first commandment back in Genesis chapter 1 expresses, that those same hormones, that they get us into trouble all the time. That, that's just the way it is. The body is fleshly. That there's no other explanation. Romans chapter 8. Now then, there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ Yahshua. Every single Israelite is among the number of Christ Yahshua. All of the promises to Israel are promised to the seed of Jacob without exception. Verse 2. Indeed, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Yahshua has liberated you from the law of guilt and death. The law is powerless in that it has been weak over the flesh. It's our tutor, our schoolmaster, as we'll see when we discuss Galatians chapter 3 next week. Chapters 3 and 4. Yahweh, sending his own son in the likeness of errant flesh, and amidst guilt, condemned guilt in the flesh, that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us, who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the Spirit. Christ overcame the flesh and showed that the Spirit is greater. For they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who are in accordance with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the purpose of the Spirit, life and peace. These are the two natures of Adamic man, which I explained some months ago in, in a discussion here. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In other words, we are judged in the Spirit. We are all children of Yahweh. If indeed the Spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, and if one has not the Spirit of Christ, he is not of him. In other words, you must be a descendant of Adam and not a broken sister. But if flesh, if Christ is in you, indeed the body is dead because of fault. This body was already condemned back in Genesis chapter 3. But the spirit alive because of righteousness, because it belongs to Yahweh, and we come from him. Moreover, the spirit of he who raised Yahshua from the dead dwells in you. He who raises the anointed from the dead will also produce alive your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. If you're a son of Adam, you can't avoid the, re the resurrection. If you're not a son of Adam, you don't have a part, but you won't miss anything because you didn't have it coming in the first place. That's just a simple fact of life. That's a simple fact of Scripture. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, I'm sorry, for if in accordance with the flesh you live, you are about to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
In other words, our spirits have to overcome our bodies. And they will, in Christ. Indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage, meaning to take the law back upon ourselves anew to fear. But you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons in which we cry, Father, Father. That same spirit bears witness with our with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh and its children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer together, going through this life, that also we will be honored together. Therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. In other words, everybody of our race awaits our revelation. To transientness, the creation was subjected, not willingly, but on account of he, meaning Yahweh, who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liber liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom and honor of the honor of the children of Yahweh. For we know that the whole creation, meaning every Adamite, every Adamic spirit, and we will see that soon, laments together and travails together until then. And not alone, but also they having the first fruit of the Spirit, and we ourselves with them lament, awaiting the placement of sons, the redemption of our body. In hope we are restored, meaning to that state which our first parents were in before the fall, and to Yahweh's favor. In hope we are restored, but hope being seen is not hope. Indeed, that which one sees, why would he also hope for it? In other words, we shouldn't just hope for it, we should know it. But if we expect that which we do not see, through patient endurance we wait. And in like manner, the Spirit assists us with our weakness for that which we should pray for. Regarding what there is need of, we do not know, but the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible utterances. And he who searches the hearts knows that which is in the mind of the Spirit, because in accordance with Yahweh it intercedes for the saints, for us. But we know that those who love Yahweh, to those who love Yahweh, all things work together for good, to those who in accordance with purpose are called, because those whom he has known beforehand, he is also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his Son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. And the only way that he could be firstborn is because he is Yahweh. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, Israel, these he also calls, and those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy, while those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. That word deems worthy can also be rendered justifies. Now what may we say in reply to these things? If Yahweh is for us, who is against us? who indeed spared not his own son, but for all of us, meaning all Israel without exception, handed him over, 
How then, with him, will he not favor us in every way? Who shall bring an accusation against the chosen of Yahweh? It is Yahweh who renders justice. Who is he that condemns? Christ, Yahshua, who had died, then in a greater moment was raised, and whom is at the right hand of Yahweh, and whom intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Affliction or strait, or persecution or hunger or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, that for your sake we are put to death the whole day, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all of these things, we are more than victorious through he who loves us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor messengers, nor magistrates, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other creation, nor any other creation, the same word that was used to represent creation earlier in the chapter several times. The language proves that Paul considered, in his language, the Adamic race by itself as one single distinct creation. Nor any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of Yahweh, which is in Christ, Yahshua, our Prince. That's the end of my presentation of Romans and the relationship of Israel to sin. Paul proceeds from Romans chapter 9, and over several chapters actually, to compare Jacob and Esau, the vessels of mercy and the vessels of destruction. The children of Israel are vessels of mercy. The entire theme throughout the Bible is racial, and Paul's epistles are no exception. If we don't get it right, everything else that we try to interpret, interpret from Scripture will be skewed. We have to have a firm foundation. And if we don't, we don't know what sin is, and we don't know what favor is, and we don't understand our relationship to the law. The law, as I believe was proven here tonight, should be our ideal. But we don't judge our, brothers, our brethren by the law, and we don't expect ourselves to be judged by the law. If we judge our brother by the law, we condemn ourselves. That's just the way it is. Okay, this is supposed to be an open forum, and I've been running my mouth for two hours. I, I really had hoped to get and to cover Galatians tonight. I um, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I I just didn't expect to spend four hours doing it. So I'll leave the rest of it until next week. And next week I'm going to have basically the same conversation, but I'm going to reinforce it from Galatians, and because um, I'm putting Galatians off to next week, I'll probably throw some Ephesians and some Colossians in there too. If anybody has anything to say, well, I don't have any dates, any dates tonight or anything, so, so I could hang out. You're more than welcome to say it. 
that there's still quite a few people here, and, and this is an open forum, so I would encourage you to say something, because I'm tired of talking already. It's been two hours. Hello, Jeremiah. Hey, Bill. Well, do you have anything to, to contribute here? I mean, you asked to talk, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but my question would be, what about those who grew up, let's say grew up knowing the law? They, they knew that um, such laws like um, for the issue with marriage that seems to be going on pretty rampant, that sex is marriage under the law. But when they themselves finally read the verse and misinterpreted one flesh into thinking that that meant when a child is born, it's marriage, and then they went and had sex with a non-virgin, what about them? Because they originally knew the law, but when they read the verse, they got confused and then basically broke the law. They, are they basically condemned? Well, well, that's the way it is. We all sin. We, we have to hope that we're not judged by the law, right? Well, well, we're not going to be judged by the law. But that doesn't mean that you should go continually breaking it. I, I mean, you don't have a right to sleep with eight other women, right? I mean, you would know that's wrong, so you won't do that. Yeah, you know what I mean? You keep the law that... You, 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 you keep the wife that you have. You don't add one sin upon another. I'm sorry, you just don't do that. And I demonstrated that very clearly from Genesis last week. And the Pharisees, the modern-day Pharisees, are now reduced to denying the plain words of Genesis and to twisting the scripture of Genesis. And I really think that's pretty funny that they're reduced to doing that. But yes, if you've accepted a woman... You keep that woman. And, and I'm going to go a step further, and this is really going to piss them off, right? If you meet a woman that has no attachments, but she had sex so many years ago, or, or she had a husband that deserted her, or, or whatever, and, and you took that woman to yourself, I don't want to know. It's none of my business whether she's a virgin or not. That's between you and her and God, and I shouldn't go asking. Uh, okay, that, that's, that, that's a decision that you have to make. And if you feel that the circumstances are, are, are um, appropriate or warranted, I'm not going to judge you poorly for it. I, I'm not going to do it. That, that's between you and her and God. I'm not going to encourage that you go looking for a relationship like that. I, I can't do that. that that's, I'm not going to encourage that you violate the law. The, the letter of the law, but you're not going to be judged by the letter of the law. And, and you might, any one of us could come an, into a, an instance where we could rationalize taking a wife tomorrow and, and find a reason to do it, but, but it's basically between us and God. And, and I know now that, and I can't imagine a circumstance where I could take a wife that's not a virgin, and, and that's my choice, and I understand that knowing the law, but if I had a wife that wasn't a virgin and I came to learn all this, I wouldn't throw her to the curb. I couldn't do that. I would be adding one sin upon another. I would be breaking an obligation that I had already initiated.
And, and once you initiate that obligation, it, it's a greater sin to break it. That That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah, I agree. If, if no other man has a claim on a woman, and and, and no, no other man claims her as, as his wife, the um, the law of divorce under the Hebrew, uh, under the Old Testament, would allow them to marry. So, so the people that want to keep the Levitical law, they have to keep the whole Levitical law. I, I don't. I, I think that they're just that they're just plain hypocrites for insisting that we keep this law and not that law. Now, I understand that Christ said that he who leaves his wife and divorces another commits adultery. And that's absolutely true. There's no doubt about that. I will never advocate that anyone get divorced. But Christ also said that he who, who, he who leaves his wife and marries another, and this is in Matthew chapter 5, forces her to commit adultery. In other words, Christ understood that the situation the woman would be left in, she would be forced to go looking for another husband. Now, he also says that he who marries a woman who has been put away commits adultery. That's absolutely true. That there's no doubt you are committing adultery. But because you find yourself married to a woman who had been put away by another man and you've already obligated yourself to her and then you learn the Levitical law, are you bound to release her? No. You've already committed yourself to her. You should keep her. And that's the example in Genesis. That's the example God himself gives us in Genesis. And I'm not going to tell another man that he has to put his wife away because she had another husband years ago. That, that's just ridiculous to dissolve a family and to dissolve a familial relationship just because you have come to learn how things should have been in the first place. We're not under the law. We're under grace. So how could you hold your brother to the letter of the law? You can't. Also, though, you have to think, I mean, do they expect these kids who are like 15, 14, 16 to stay with each other because they made a mistake? That's almost ludicrous. Well, well, right. What we have to do is we have to raise, we have to have children and raise them up righteously. When we come to the knowledge of the truth, we have to have children and raise them up righteously to know better and hope that they do better, right? Exactly. I mean, I mean, these people are basically condemning an ent entire generation. Well, well, right. Uh, that, that they would actually take us out of the entire. We we probably shouldn't have any more white kids by their attitude. I mean, my entire age group is basically all adulterers. I don't know a single kid who's not a virgin by the age of eighteen. I don't know a single. Uh, I, I probably couldn't find a kid that's a virgin at fourteen. And that's the the um, the allegory I made last week is, is that one Eve was deceived by the serpent, yet she kept her husband, and and they continued to have children. 
And um, under the Levitical law, that could not have been a legitimate relationship. That, that relationship, the relationship which Adam had with Eve, whether you want to believe Adam and Eve had sex before the serpent intervened or not, doesn't matter. Because there's the law of diversion and there's the law of divorce. And one of those laws had to be violated. Yet, once Adam accepted Eve back, once Adam accepted Eve, he was stuck with her. And that's what precipitated his fall, was his acceptance of Eve. But he was stuck with her after that, because he accepted her in the condition that she was in. Therefore, once you take a wife to yourself, and you accept her in her non-virginal state, you accept her, you're staying with her. And, and that's the example which is set in, in the story of Adam and Eve. Yes, your, your, your relationship began in sin. So the right thing to do is to have children and, and not to, to, to teach them the right way from the beginning so that they don't follow your mistakes. Yeah, you know, my own son, after he grew up, he, he told me how angry he had been with me because I divorced his mother. Well, well his mother really divorced me. But I'm, I'm not, um, I have as much fault in it as she does, if not more. Well, well um, I looked at my son and I told him, well, now you know from my example how bad it is and you should go do better. And he looked at me, and he, he, he had to agree with me. He, he had to, and, and that's the way it should be. And I pray that he does do better. And he knows that. Oh, yeah. Now, now we have Pharisees in Christian identity who, who have never had children of their own, who've never had a legitimate relationship, and, and if they ever had it, evidently didn't last very long. And they've never raised children. And now, now that they're old hags, basically, they want to rule over other men's wives and, and other men's faith. And, and that's that. They should be judged by the law because they're judging their brethren by the law. And, and when it comes time for them to be judged by the laws of God, well, well, they're in trouble. And, and that's the example we just saw from Paul. That's what the scripture says. Well, yeah, and like in my case, where basically everyone in my age group are... Well, we're right, but, yeah, you know, if if you went and, and I found you with a wife next week, I'm, I'm not going to say, Jeremiah, was she a virgin? It's none of my business. I, I would hope that you found one, and that would be a wonderful thing. Chances are you'll never find one. Does that mean that you shouldn't have children? No, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have children. You should find a woman that you know is able to repent and learn the truth and is willing to do that and, and to raise up righteous children. That, that's yeah. the, the only way that I could judge that situation from my heart. And, and that's not by the letter of the law. It, it's actually contrary to the letter of the law. But 
That's the way it is. And, and we have uh, an entire generation of Eves in this, and Adams in this day and age. Well, yeah, that's the, what I was going to say is because I know it's basically impossible, oh, nearly impossible for me to find a, a virgin in my age group, uh, I'm pretty sure, like, you know, if I found a girl and I knew she was a, you know, wasn't a virgin, I would, I would be honest with God. I'd say, like, Yahweh, I know I'll be committing adultery, but I promise you my children will be better. And I promise you that I'll do the best I can as a father so my children do not do this mistake and will not have to be forced to do this mistake, that the next generation will not be as basically lost. Well, well what the, another thing the modern-day Pharisees are missing with the law of the virgin is that when a man goes into a woman and finds some uncleanness in him, there's no law that says that he has to return her to her parents. The law of the virgin does not state that he has to return her to her parents. It only lays out what happens if he chooses to return her to her parents. Okay? And the Pharisees are missing that. The, the modern-day Pharisees that want to judge according to that law, they're missing that. There's nothing that states that if he goes into, if he takes a maiden and goes into her, that he must return her to her father. He has a choice as to whether to do that. He must have a choice as to whether to do that because the law doesn't say that he must. So, so that's something that the modern-day Pharisees are missing. Yes, it's true that in Greek culture and in Hebrew culture, a maiden that got married was expected to be a virgin. But I'm sure that plenty of women were married in Israel that weren't virgins. And I'm sure that every single one of us has one of those women somewhere along the lines as one of our grandmothers. So people should be careful of how they judge others. The law is our ideal. We should strive to live up to its expectations. And to Yahweh's commandments. And, and the Ten Commandments are extremely important. We should strive to live up to them. Oh, yeah. But we're going to fail. We're all going to fail at diverse times. Hey, Bill, I just wanted to let you know... Um, doing a fabulous job here with um, you know elaborating our relationship to the law currently I mean this this is some really fabulous stuff that you're talking about um, I regret that I missed the first hour and uh, I got to get up early in the morning to, to get back to the, the job that I was doing but uh, I just wanted to let you know I mean this this sounded great it's some riveting stuff and you know I was looking down at the chat room, there's barely any chat for like the last hour because, you know, you're just, you're really hitting the nail on the head here. Well, thanks, Matt, but that's the scripture.
that that's what the scripture says, right? That's all I'm trying to expound on. That there are a lot, a lot of people that um that they keep on repeating two scriptures that they took out of context. So, so um that that that's that's not really teaching the the will of God and and um what Israel's relationship to God should be, right? Right, and this, uh, you know, it, it helps bring into perspective, too, that um, you know, it's, not, it's not about just pulling out verses. It's not about just knowing even a series of verses or a chapter. It's knowing the, the entire story beginning to end. Well, well right, exactly. And, and if you don't know the entire scripture, you're going to end up in all kinds of error. And, and when you want a Pharisee over your brethren, you, you would better make sure that your own house is 100% clean. That, that's the way it is. And, and if you've got to ask another man whether or not his wife was a virgin, you should probably be beat to death with a club for playing God. God knows who your wife is. God knows the trials she's had in her life. God knows why she's ended up in your house. Well, uh, another question that I, I would bring up, um, Bill, is, is I see nowhere in any of the prophecy scriptures of, you know, of the end times, you could say, where Yahweh is going to force all the original husbands and wives to be together. Well, well that, the person that's saying that is a fool. He's the stock trader, right? He's the usurer who, who's judging the adulterer, right? He doesn't understand the law of divorce, that when a man divorces a wife or puts her away and, and separation of a man and a wife, that basically is what is meant by divorce in the ancient world. It means a taking apart, right, and, and a separation. Well, well, that divorce, when that woman goes and sleeps with another man, the first man in the law of divorce, Deuteronomy chapter 24, cannot take her back. That's Yahweh clearly calls that an abomination. He clearly calls that an abomination. He cannot take her back. So, so that fool that, that's trying to say that you have to go back and find your first lover, well, well I know who my first lover was, and she was a good girl when she was 16, but she's had 50 other husbands, I bet. And I don't want her back, ever. <laughs> Not in that body, anyway. <laughs> I'm just being somewhat facetious, but, but I'm, uh, I'm making an illustration to make a point. So, so the stock trader should keep the trading stocks and, and let somebody else um, leave the scripture to somebody else, right? Uh, I won't trade stocks, and he shouldn't try to teach the scripture. In fact, he should be ashamed of himself. Now, um, for, for when a man takes a wife and then uh, puts her away, and, you know, then she goes with another guy, then he basically takes her back, is that an abomination because God ba is basically saying, hey, you had your chance, you threw her away, you don't deserve to be with her after that? 
Well, well, well for whatever reason, it's, it's an abomination before God. I, I'm not going to um, conjecture as to, as to why, but that's the letter of the Levitical law uh, of the Deuteronomy, the, the law in Deuteronomy. And, and this man who professes to be a, a Pharisee of the law, basically, he's trying to be a teacher of the law and hold people to the law. He's missing that one. He didn't read that one, or, or he's never read his Bible at all. He's probably reading his Bible for the first time as he goes through it with Eli James. Now, I'm, I'm conjecturing again, but I don't know how you miss that one if you want to investigate marriage in the law. I don't know how you miss that law of divorce if you want to investigate marriage in the law. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 22, and he's missing Deuteronomy 24. Well, Jeremiah, in answer to your question, I think, you know, simply that's just, that's something that, uh, you know, would end up leading to sexual proclivities, really, you know, if, if you were allowed to, essentially it would be saying, like, it's okay to jump back and forth between your wife and other women. True. That's just Yahweh saying that, you know, the buck stops here. Now, now let's look at this. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and hates her and gives occasions of speech against her and brings an evil name upon her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and the mother take and bring forth the tokens of the maiden's virginity. Uh, all right. If they have them, right? If a man takes a wife and goes into her and hates her and gives occasions of speech against her, it doesn't say, this is the law of the virgin, it doesn't say that if the man takes a wife and goes into her and finds her not a maid, that he has to bring her back to her parents. That's not what it says. And that's why I would say that if you took a wife and, and she wasn't a virgin, and you took her as your wife, well, I'm not going to ask you if she wasn't a virgin. The law doesn't require it. Who the hell am I to ask you if... Hey, Jeremiah, you, you, you met... Uh, all right, Jewel, perfect example, nice girl, Midwestern girl. Jeremiah, was Jewel a virgin? I would never ask you that. It's none of my damned business. It's between you and God and the woman. But if you accept her as your wife, she's yours, pal. A and I wouldn't approve of you putting her away. Except for reason of fornication. A and these modern-day Pharisees, that they're, they're, really, um, they're really messing up because they're imposing... Well, we know that sex, the act of sex, is the act of marriage. There's no doubt about that. But they're imposing restrictions on their brethren or attempting to repose restrictions on their brethren that God himself does not impose. Period. 
And really, a lot of this stuff is, is just common sense. And, and that's kind of what it means to have the law written on our hearts. Well, well absolutely. Okay, if nobody has anything else to add, I'm going to end this program, and, and we could go down to the open house and, and um, banter there all night, if you will, but uh, I could cut the recording. Thank you for being here, and praise Yahweh. Oh, hold it. Nope. Aaron, Aaron requested talk power. Uh, I can't miss him. Whoops. Thanks, Matt. Hello. Arian Sword, Aaron, Arian Sword, what's up? Hey, sorry, I sent a request to talk at the last minute. I apologize. Oh, that's okay. That, that's quite all right. It's only the last minute because I thought it should be, but that, that's because I thought nobody else was going to join in. So, no, no. we could hang out. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to say a few things real quick. I mean, I've been recently reading a bit of. Uh, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, and um, you know, who has great points in his writings, apart from his atheistic beliefs and lack of understanding the real dangers of the Jews. But um, but this topic does remind me of his valid points on how the Catholic religion was used to gain power over the sheep of the world. The the priests ruled over the people, making them through their demand of rituals. Well, well, yes, they did. And even though they weren't the, the same precise rituals of the Old Testament, they were nevertheless rituals. The, the um, I, I've talked on this often. Sacramentalism, the belief that you have to perform certain, certain sacraments to achieve your salvation, that is the same as the Levitical rituals. It's the same idea. And it's the the belief that you could achieve your own salvation that that's ridiculous. That's very fleshly. You cannot do anything to effect your salvation. Yeah, and it's putting the grace that Yahweh gave us into the mud. It's just tossing it away, and it's a very prideful and evil act to uh, to to take against Yahweh. You know, the, the Catholic priests they prayed. Reserving God's forgiveness from the masses, you know, by turning God's mercy into works of the flesh. This this allowed the priests to gain power by proclaiming themselves to be above others, you know, like just like the Pharisees. And at, at the same time, it forced the masses into bondage, placing placing them under the law instead of under grace as God would want them to be. This rendered the people powerless over the adversaries who were usurping the power that was given to them by their God, you know? And, and so the snakes made their way into the church, restricting the true word of God to be spread. Well, well, that's absolutely true. And it's real, it's real weird. If you look in, um, I did this search one day while I was on the phone, just um, bantering kind of with Clifton Emmerheiser. We were talking on the phone, and I was sitting in front of my Windows computer with the Logos library up. And, and just for the hell of it, I searched for the terms Christian priest, Christian priests, and, and for the term priest in general. 
and, and um, you'll find the term Christian priest in, in, the, in the writings of the Nicene Fathers and the post-Nicene Fathers, right? So from Eusebius on, you'll find this term. But you won't find the term Christian priest in the anti-Nicene Fathers. In the writers of the first three centuries of Christianity, there is no such term as Christian priest. And wherever you see, and, and I did a, a search for the words priest and priests, wherever you see those words, they pertain only to Levitical priests and the Melchizedek priesthood. And that's it. And, and pagan priests. That's it. You, you don't see the word priest in Christianity in Christian terms until the, the Pharisees had infiltrated Christianity, which wasn't really until it was decriminalized. When Christianity was decriminalized, all of a sudden all these Christian priests started appearing, right? And, and it was just the same old pagan priesthood wanting to extend their rule over Christians. And, and that's what we have with these the, these three stooges today and everybody else that thinks like them, is we have people who want to rule over the faith of their brethren when that is anti-Christian. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, they, they, the early Christians knew what it was to be a pastor, and that was to be a servant. It wasn't to be a leader, uh, overpowering ruler that you made people give your money to. It was the, the, they were the guys that were showing what it was to be Christ-like, to be self-sacrificing, and to be at the bottom of the totem pole. They weren't at the top. Well, well, right, absolutely. That, that's absolutely true. The, the adversaries and antichrists of the world sell work righteousness to their workers in hopes it will hold back the kingdom of God by keeping all these children in bondage from treading on the, the, the breed of vipers. And that's what they're trying to do, you know? And it's no surprise that the Jews were the ones that got into the Catholic Church and... and um, and, and started changing the Word of God and, and keeping the Word of God from being spread. Well, well right. And, and it's, um, I, I, I don't know, these people that want a Pharisee over others, that they, they, um, that they also want to draw some funny lines in, in other directions and, and pollute the, the, what I think that I think is um, that they really want to mold Christian identity in, in their own... Um, evangelical missionary image. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, I, I look at it as, you know, just as certain individuals saw pedal salvation to be for individuals outside the Danish race, so there are people who water down the, the mercy and forgiveness of Yahweh through his self-sacrifice on the throne. Well, well, right, exactly. And Yahweh drew the lines this way, and they're trying to say, oh, no, we have to draw them that way. It just don't work that way. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, you know, that's the, the, a fact from, from reading Scripture. I think that we don't get tricked but when we read it, if we understand it, that then, then um, that, that shows who we are. But even if it even if it doesn't, if we see it and understand it and acknowledge it, that then we're the more honorable for it. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the truth is the truth.
Yeah, I totally understand. I mean, we're just we're just strive to keep the law, but praise Yahweh, we're not condemned by the law for for those that understand that have have either not had their scales fallen off from their eyes or they're not of us, you know? Right. You know, I just realized something that um, uh, pretty much why this this doctrine has become a pet doctrine of of you-know-who here. What does it do other than exalt this person? Well, a person that's never had children to raise up, that's a disgrace. The ancient Hebrews saw that as a disgrace. Lot's daughters slept with their own father for fear that he wouldn't have any sons. I'm sorry, if you've never raised up children of your own, you have no right to tell anybody else a damn thing about your race or about Christianity. I don't care what the reason is. Yeah, you should just keep your mouth shut and keep your tail between your legs. Yeah, and if someone can't see that this is a life of Satan, to not have children is just crazy because that would be the one of the best things that he would love for us to, you know, to do is to just stop having children. That way all the other races can take over. Well, well, right, but a few of these stooges, the, these modern-day Pharisees that, that um, are all of a sudden condemning other people for being in relationships that weren't that didn't have ideal beginnings, they, these people never raised up families of their own. Who the hell are they to judge anybody? That they've lived lives of profligacy. And, and now all of a sudden they want to run their mouths. Well, Matt, I wouldn't trade Josh for the whole war, I'm telling you. <laughs> Hell no. Well, does the uh, story of Jonah, does the story of Jonah not warn us not to fall into the trap of placing our own opinion of justice above God? Yeah, right. There's a, there's a thousand examples in, in the scripture. That, that we shouldn't be self-righteous. Yeah, I was going to say, we, there's about a million examples in there. That this, um, you know, the last thing we should be is self-righteous. Hey, hey, I'm not a sinner. That this one, that this one turkey, you know, he's boasting that he put his wife away and, and they haven't had sex in X number of years, but they're still best friends and they have a perfect relationship. He's boasting about that. So, so what I would tell him is that if, if he's righteous in his boast, then he already has his reward. Because he's boasted in the flesh. So so he already has his reward. Well, apparently, sadly, Bill, there's somebody else we know who is uh, doing the same things to themselves because of this, uh, this BS that they're spreading. Well, well that's sad. That, that's really sad. Because um, to put your wife away after you've accepted her as being your wife is hypocritical. And if anybody persuades 
you to do that, you're only um, you're only fooling yourself, and you're probably if you're of childbearing age, you're probably um, severely harming yourself by not by choosing not to raise up children for the sake of self righteousness. You're going to forsake your own children. That's what well, yeah. it boils down to. It makes you remind me of. Uh once again, the Catholic monks, you know. Right, exactly. We've seen the evils that have come from them and the priests bottling all that up inside, you know, not doing what comes natural. They're doing it to, uh, to kids and do it in a very unnatural state. Right. Well, well, tonight, I'm going to continue tonight, next week, when I talk about Galatians. I'm going to continue this for one more week, just because um, there's still some things I have to say. Good. Yeah, this is a good follow-up from the, from the last one. Really good one. Well, thanks. Maybe we'll do better next time. John, do you have anything before I, um, before I rope this pony? <laughs> yeah, well, I just have a, I'm going to change the subject, of course, but uh, I got uh, one of your favorite quotes in the Bible in Isaiah 29, 21. Uh, you're, you're familiar with that, right? Uh, I guess, maybe. Is that the one about um, he who reproves in the gate? Yes, sir. Now, okay. uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking up in several different Bible versions online here, and it seems like there's a bit of confusion as to what the exact meaning of that is. Uh, are you aware of that confusion? No, I'm actually not, but, but I could see where it might be difficult to, to um, interpret the, the words. It, it's not the clearest language. Oh, all right, well, let me try to explain it. Like, here in, for instance, the New International Version, it says, um, those who, with a word, make a man out to be guilty. Now, um, it seems like they are their words and just making a man out, just by, in other words, making up a lie in order to make a man feel guilty, or rather than saying, like in the King James Version, saying that uh, who... Who, uh, uh, I'm sorry, there's kicking at the moment. Uh, that make a man an offender for a word. Well, well, right. And, and you know, the, the Septuagint and the Septuagint Greek pretty much agrees with the King James in, in that aspect. And, and where, where Breton, well, well the, the, um, the NAS says, who caused a person to be indicted by a word. And that, by a word, that, that's even, um, it, it only comes from the term en logo, logo, which means by a word, or it can mean for a word, right? And, and I'm looking at the Greek, right? And, and it can, it's the dative case. And, and, and snare him who agitates at the gate, that, that means to decide or judge or reprove at the gate, and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments, well, which kind of change the NAS kind of changes the sense of it, and, and this says the King James and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. 
But basically, to make a man an offender for a word is to make a man an offender because you don't agree with something that he says. And, and I read that in both translations and in the Greek of, of the um, of the Septuagint. Well, which I'll, I have the Greek of the Septuagint in front of me, but I don't have Brenton's Septuagint in front of me, the English. But, but it clearly says, and, and those making a man to sin for a word, and, and that's a sinner for a word or, or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's... it's um, it, it it's basically to me it means those who make a man an offender or a sinner because he's speaking righteously is is the way I read that. But but I haven't compared every translation either or, or the Hebrew. Yeah, it's, it's a little. I, I would like to believe it the way the King James version says. I mean, to make a man an offender for a word, or or by. Uh, or those who convict the innocent by their false testimony, will, um, does, that's a different version. I, it gets really confusing when you compare all the all of the different versions out there. Well, well, right. It all boils down to the understanding of the translator rather than, than the literal. You know, how many different ways the Hebrew words can be interpreted. Yeah, it's to me, to me, and all that watch for iniquity, and in in in, in verse twenty is actually helping to um helping me to lean towards the King James the way they have twenty one translated, right? Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off in in the NAS, which is kind of different. But you see, that boils down to Hebrew grammar that I don't really have a good grip on. And, and I don't think the, the, the Jews do either. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I'm sure that they don't. Yeah, you know, I had to look, is that verb, is, is that verb, yeah, you know, that, that, that all who watch for iniquity, that would be an active verb. All who are intent on doing evil, that would be a passive verb. Yeah, you know, it, it's... The, the way the grammar is, and I don't know if Hebrew has uh, all that grammar. I've never really studied Hebrew grammar to that degree, so I, I'd need a pile of books to figure it out. I, I mean, I know the rules, I just don't know the Hebrew grammar itself, right? Yeah, well, I mean, let me just give you a couple of examples there. The New American Standard Bible says, who caused... Good night, Dina. Welcome to Christagenia. Let, let me say, Dina, I know this is your first or second time here. This is a 24-7 that this server's up all the time. There's people here every evening. Feel free to stop by any other night or, or afternoon or morning or whatever. That there's not always people here, but there's people here every evening. You don't have to thank me. Oh, okay, John, I'm going to wrap this up, and, and thank you, everybody, for being here, and, and um, praise Yahweh.